Bow your heads with me. <clears throat> Father, we <clears throat> thank you for the time we have together this morning. And as we open your word together, we pray your spirit would enliven our hearts to hear from you. Please help us to be receptive to what the word has for us. And, and may your spirit apply it exactly the right way in each of our lives. That we might grow in the likeness of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Well, beloved, uh, we return again this morning to the topic of modesty, the topic of modesty, an issue of the heart. And as we begin together this morning, I just want to start with a simple statement to set the groundwork for everything. And the simple statement is this, that God loves beauty. God loves beauty. That statement is manifestly evident by simply looking around at creation. Everywhere you look, you see the beauty of God. The shapes, the sizes, the diversity, the textures, the colors, even the tastes and the aromas are all an illustration of the kindness and goodness of God and his love for beauty. God is what makes this creation beautiful and indeed it is a beautiful place. God also makes men handsome and women beautiful. His, his love of beauty is revealed in the human creation. As we look around, there is, it's obvious that, that men are good-looking to women and women are good-looking to men and God made it that way. And he he wants us to enjoy that reality, provided we enjoy it within the protective boundaries of his holy word. When we enjoy the creation the way God has designed it to be enjoyed, there is abundance for all. I think that as we return back to the topic of modesty again this morning, I'm reminded of the words of Israel's great King David, where he writes in Psalm 36, For with you, Lord, is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. In other words, when we see the creation as God has designed it to be and determined it to be, then we begin to see it truly and we can begin to understand it and enjoy it. So we're returning again, second part of the series on modesty, which has grown larger than I intended originally, but such is the nature of, of the topic, I suppose. And we have broken it down into a six questions, six questions and answers that help us get at the heart of modesty, for modesty itself is an issue of the heart. These six questions, we looked at the first one last week, and the question was, what is modesty? Other questions were, what does the Bible teach about nakedness? Is modesty only a woman's issue? Are there reliable universal principles for modesty? Whose job is it to set the standard of modesty? And what are the limits of our love? These are the six questions that I want to use to sort of get at this topic for us. Last week, we undertook the first question, what is modesty? 
And as we asked that question and answered it, we noted that modesty embodies concepts like restraint, dignity, propriety, and humility. We also looked last time at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, which is the only place in the New Testament where the word modesty appears. And as we looked at that passage together, what we determined from that passage is that God wants Christian women to be beautiful. It is God's design and desire for Christian women to be beautiful. And the question is, how are they to be beautiful? And what we determined from that passage was that Christian beauty for a woman comes from deflecting attention away from her external appearance and focusing, rather, on her godly character. So deflecting away from the external appearance and focusing on the godly character. That's Paul's um, inspired (laughs) teaching with regard to modesty there in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. And it shouldn't surprise us, I was thinking this week about this, and it reminded me of Proverbs 31. And the Proverbs 31 woman that we all hold up as that ideal characterization of a woman of God. And there in Proverbs 31, in verses 30 and 31, we find the following. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her. In the gates. That's an Old Testament version of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. What I want to do this morning in the time that's available to us is to take up the next question with you. And the next question is what does the Bible teach about nakedness? What does the Bible teach about nakedness? When it comes to the topic of nakedness, actually, the scripture has quite a bit to say. And it's probably best to divide the biblical teaching on nakedness down into into three segments. And that's what I want to do with you this morning, is I want to break it down into three segments. So the first segment is pre-fall, before the fall of Adam. What does the Bible teach about nakedness? The next segment is post-fall. After the fall of Adam, what does the Bible teach us about nakedness? And the third segment that I want to look at is The marriage covenant, what does the Bible teach us about nakedness with regard to the marriage covenant? And I'll look at each of those in turn. So, here we go. In the time that we have available, and as long as my voice holds out. You ready? Pre-fall. In mankind's original state, Before Adam's disobedience and fall into sin, he and Eve experienced nakedness without shame. Turn to Genesis. We're going to be in the Old Testament for a fair amount of this. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where we find the the only statement, I'm going to say the definitive statement, it is the definitive statement because it's the only statement with regard to the topic of nakedness before the fall. Genesis chapter 2 and verses 24 and 25. 
Verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. For what reason? For the reason that it is not good for a man to be alone. Verse 18, for that reason. So for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were both naked and not ashamed. When we, in a moment or two here, get to chapter 3, after the fall, we find nakedness again appearing in the context, but this time it, it occurs in the context of shame. And it's really interesting, I think, because the use of nakedness in both chapters 2 and 3 connect it to some very, very significant um, realities. Nakedness is connected here contextually to sin. It occurs before sin and after sin. It's connected to guilt, for it is pre-guilt and, and you know, before guilt and then when guilty. It's connected to shame in the statement here where there is no shame in verse 25, and then the statements we'll look at shortly in chapter 3 where there is shame, and it's also connected to marriage. It occurs here in the statement of that first marriage covenant and will appear again in the same, kind, uh, same context of marriage. And so nakedness is connected to these really important realities of sin, guilt, shame, and marriage. And it's significant, I think, that of, of all of the, the factors that Moses could have called out with regard to what characterized humanity before the fall and after the fall, nakedness is the one he chooses. He makes a very specific point here in verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Following that, we'll see statements about shame related to nakedness. So the question you have to ask yourself is why? Why is nakedness... The, the factor or the, or the character that, that Moses calls out in the context here of pre- and post-fallen humanity. And the answer to that question is that nakedness is the tangible expression of a deeper spiritual reality. It is the tangible expression of a deeper spiritual reality. And that deeper spiritual reality is innocence or lack thereof. That is what connects nakedness in chapters 2 and 3. Here in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, we are at the end of the wedding ceremony. This is where God the Father fashions Eve from the rib of Adam, right? And she brings her to him. And we even see in verse 23 the, the, the um, verbiage of the marriage covenant. And at that point in time, Adam and Eve are in perfect undefiled fellowship with both God as their creator and horizontally with each other. So in this perfect state before the entrance of sin into the world, they are in this perfect fellowship and they are naked, we're told, and there is no shame associated with it. In other words, that their relationship is not hindered in any way, shape, or form is not disturbed by the intrusion of sin 
and the consequent destruction that sin brings, the destruction of trust, the destruction of intimacy. And in this idyllic state, nakedness has no shame. There is no shame. This is the world, unfortunately, that we only can know about by reading. No one can experience this. It is gone. It is gone. And that takes us to the, last, the vast majority of what the Scripture has to say, and that's about the world after the fall, the world that you and I know, the world that we've experienced, the world in which to, we have been born, the only world you and I presently know. And after the fall, everything changes. Everything changes with the fall of Adam, the entrance of sin into the world. And nakedness also changes because nakedness now in the Scripture is almost always associated with shame. In fact, other than the marriage covenant, it is associated with shame. Nakedness, once a, a, a sign of their innocence, has now become a sign of their shame and my shame and yours. My shame and yours. And there are five passages of Scripture this morning that I want to look at with you, and we're not going to have time to you know, go deeply into every single one of them, but there are five passages of Scripture I want to look at with you this morning that clearly point out this reality of the world in which you and I live. Nakedness is now associated with shame. And that takes us to the first of those five passages here in chapter 3. Chapter 3. Pick up it in uh, verse 7 of chapter 3. They have taken and eaten of the fruit. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? In the deliberate disobedience of God's command to them, given in Genesis chapter 2, We'll get better at that. In verse 17, Adam and Eve lost their moral innocence. In their deliberate disobedience, Adam's deliberate disobedience, Paul tells us Eve was deceived. Adam chose. He went into it eyes wide open. In that deliberate disobedience, <clears throat> their moral innocence was lost. And they are now guilty of sin. Guilty of sin before God guilty of sin before each other, and they know it. And they know it. And they attempt to respond to this change of situation, notice, by clothing themselves and hiding from God. Clothing themselves and hiding from God. And, and I would like to suggest to you here that they are, they are trying to hide from each other at the same time. 
So they are responding to the guilt that they now know that they have by trying to hide. Why? Why? The answer is the guilt of sin. It's pressing down on them. It's the, the weight of it upon their conscience. And as that weight bears down on them, two things become obvious to them that they attempt to remedy on their own by hiding. And you know what? Let me just say this. Um, people have been hiding from God ever since or trying to. People are constantly trying to hide from God by either creating some false illusion of who God is or what his standards might be or, or how they can be found acceptable before him or whatever. But man, from this point forward, has been constantly attempting to hide from God because of the weight and realization of his guilt of sin. So here, for this first couple, two things have changed. And these two things that have changed have changed forever. And then it's instructive in how they respond and how God responds to it. So here they are. First thing that has changed is, number one, they can't trust each other any longer. The first thing, the first casualty, as it were, is this horizontal casualty that they can't trust one another any longer. By breaking trust with God, they have become defiled and they have become untrustworthy. They are, they are no longer trustworthy individuals and, and they feel this. They're self-conscious of this reality and because of this they are, feel afraid and they feel vulnerable before each other. Their nakedness that once was the sign of their innocence before God now becomes the sign of their vulnerability. And the fear that they have is, is that this other untrustworthy person may take advantage of me and shame me. So I must conceal myself from them. And indeed, is that not what Adam does? When God says to him here, what, you know, have you eaten from the tree, verse 11, that I commanded you not to eat? Notice what Adam says. I mean, Eve's fears are real. Because in verse 12, the man says, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. In other words, he immediately seeks to shame her and to throw her under the bus, as it were, and, and pass all the guilt of, the, <clears throat> of, this of this transgression off onto her. So they sense their vulnerability with each other, and they're, and they're afraid of that vulnerability and that and nakedness is, is, represents that vulnerability and the susceptibility to shame. This, is a, this is, was known, and probably still is, but certainly throughout antiquity, because when, in a, in, when soldiers were taken prisoners of war, or, or a city was sacked and, and the residents of the city, the inhabitants of the city were taken captive, they would strip them naked. They would strip them naked or leave them with a very small amount of clothing. And the purpose in doing that was not so they wouldn't smuggle weapons. The purpose in doing that was to shame them. It was to shame them. It was to reduce their status as humans by reducing their clothing. And notice again verse 7. Take a look at verse 7 with me. It, in that this is a simultaneous event for both of them. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. In other words, they're both involved in the reality of this. They both feel the vulnerability. They both feel the, the shame of it all. And they are both attempting to try to cover this up and to try to conceal it. So that's the first thing that has happened in Adam's fall. Secondly, is they are now in a state of guilt before God, and they are thus no longer at peace with God. And because they are in this uh, position of defilement before God, they feel shame. They feel shame before God. Once what was a, a close fellowship, right, verse 8, walking in the garden in the cool of the day is now a distance. It has been removed. We could say that between each other, their shame was subjective. Here we would say their shame is objective. It was objective. And what I mean by that is, is that their, their, their conscience was shaming them because their conscience was comparing their behavior to what God had required, the law of God, and they had been found wanting. And so their conscience performed its proper role, which was to condemn them, to shame them of their guilt, to bring them to that place where they understood that they were guilty. In commenting on that reality here of verse 7, one uh, old commentator writes the following, and I think it's good. He says, quote, The only gleam of light in the verse is the fact that where the shame is felt, the evildoer's case is not hopeless. Where the shame is felt, the evildoer's case is not hopeless. In other words, when someone feels no shame, they're, they're guilty and feel no shame, then they're in a really desperate place. But the fact that they feel shame because they are in a place of guilt before God means that their conscience is still working. It's still working and there's still hope for them. And so what did they do? Verse 7, right? They make Loin coverings. They make loin coverings. Why? Why did they, did they uh, make coverings for their reproductive organs, for their loins? Why? Why did, they, why did their sense of shame concentrate itself on that part of their anatomy that, from which their progeny would spring forth? Why? Well, we can't say this definitively, but there are a few things we can say. Because man is a unity of body and soul, the sins of the soul uh, ex express themselves through the body, often. In other words, that, that, that this unity of who we are as God has made us often has an outward physical manifestation. The sin is of their soul, yet the response is to their body. Now, as I say, we can't be sure here, but, but it appears to me that, that here in this fallen state that there's this new realization that <clears throat> there is a terrible conflict that now exists, and they feel it. And the terrible conflict is between what God has said back in chapter 1 and verse 28 where he has said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And his statement here in, in 2.17 that in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. 
In other words, they are to, they are to reproduce, they are to, to bring forth after their kind, yet at the same time, there is now death within their loins. And I think they feel this, and I think they feel it acutely. They recognize that the very fountainhead of human life has now been contaminated by sin. And I think it is on that basis that they attempt to conceal that part of their anatomy. But notice God doesn't leave them in that place. All right, you look at verse 21. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God clothed Adam and Eve. He did not leave them in their own feeble attempt at at clothing themselves. The Hebrew word here for uh, garment, right, in uh, translated garment here in the NASB in verse 21, indicates something that hangs from the shoulders and covers the torso. In other words, Adam and Eve tried to, to conceal their loins. God closed their body. He closed their body. And they're trying to conceal their shame from each other and from God, but God's clothing has a different purpose. And we don't want to miss this. It's very, very important. God's purpose in clothing them here in verse 21 has a far different purpose than theirs. Theirs is an attempt to conceal their guilt, their shame, in order to evade the consequences of it. God's clothing of them has a far different purpose. And it's a twofold purpose. And the first purpose is, is that God's clothing of them was to enable them to confess their shame. God put clothes on them so that they might continue to demonstrate the reality that they're no longer innocent. They are no longer innocent. For them to wear the clothing that God had placed on them was for them to own up to their sin, to own up to their guilt. They were no longer innocent. And God clothed them, and as they wore clothing, they would confess that reality. Secondly, God clothing them, God providing the clothing to them, provides them with a perpetual reminder that God himself is the one who, only one who can deal with sin, and ultimately he will deal with sin because he will clothe them himself in the righteousness to come, right? The one who is the seed of the woman, that ultimate one who clothes us, who is Christ, and we are clothed in his righteousness. It's also worth observing that God clothes them here with garments of skin, not uh, fabric, not fabric. He, he clothes them with garments of, of a skin, and that illustrates, I think, the necessity of sin drawing forth death. As my friend uh, Dr. Doug Bookman says, the uh, animals weren't born with zippers. There's only one way those skins came off. And so death is now connected to sin and connected to the clothing of humanity. And so all of these ideas are, are built right here into the very first chapters of the scriptures. So clothing, designed by God, given by God in order to enable humanity as they wear it to confess the reality of their loss of innocence and to point them to the future clothing that would come to us in the righteousness of Christ. Second passage I want to look at with you is found in Genesis 9. Genesis 9. And it also speaks about nakedness and shame. 
Genesis 9. This is following the, the flood. Right? The ark has come to a rest, and, and the floodwaters have receded, and Noah and his family come down from the ark. Verse 20, then Noah began farming and planting a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Here, Noah has, has acted unwisely here and gotten himself into a, into a position of great shame and embarrassment. And his son Ham has, has evidently come in and seen this, and it has become a source of amusement to him, a source of mockery to his father. And so his two righteous sons, Shem and Japheth, they take, notice the precaution they take here in the covering of their father's shame, their father's nakedness. They place the cloak upon their shoulders. They walk backwards so they will not see their father's nakedness. This clues us into the reality here that, that the state of nakedness is the state of shame. And these two righteous brothers take every effort to avoid being uh, shaming their father by viewing his nakedness. As I say, Ham's sin was in viewing and mocking his father's nakedness and not, as some have said, some sort of sexual arousal or anything like that. Okay? It was the shame of the nakedness. Third, I want to look with you at Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> this is all under the rubric of what does the Bible teach about na uh, nakedness. So Exodus chapter 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments. And in verse 24, God says, You shall make an altar of earth for me. You shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones, nor if you wield your tool on it. Uh, for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And then look at verse 26. You shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. So what in the world's going on there? Well, I think what's going on there is, is the reality that if there were steps leading up to the altar at this point in time, then the worshipers who would be seated at a lower level than the steps might inadvertently gain a glimpse of the nakedness of the priest as he went up to offer the sacrifice before the Lord. And if they got that glimpse, it would produce in them either shameful or impure thoughts in the midst of worship. And that was something that must be avoided at all costs. And so the altar was not to be lifted up in the view of the people. Okay. Application point, right? What do we have here? We have an elevated platform, right? With you all sitting down. What does that mean? That means that your eye level is at a different plane. Than, than when we're standing and talking to one another. So here's my application point. And I'm going to make this primarily to you ladies who find yourselves up here. Please remember that reality. Okay? What might be appropriate standing eyeball to eyeball, not so good 
when I'm seated and my eyeballs are looking right at your knees. Okay? So a word to the wise. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. Before I get myself too deeply. Now, still talking about steps. Because later steps are added to the altar. Okay, later steps are added. They're, they're permitted, they're added. Actually, uh, Leviticus, just so you don't think I'm crazy here, Leviticus 9, Leviticus 9 and uh, verse 22. Leviticus 9, 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. So, so at this point in time, steps have now been permitted, evidently. So Aaron has is, is been raised up, but now he's, you know, he comes back down after doing the offering. But here's the interesting thing is that somehow in the process of God now allowing steps, God institutes pants. Okay? Pants are God's invention. Did you know that? <clears throat> Exodus 28. Exodus 28. Pants are God's invention. And God requires the priesthood to wear pants for the sake of modesty. Exodus 28, verses 42 and 43. These are the garments for the priests. This is the chapter on the garments for the priests. <clears throat> Verse 42, you shall make for them linen breeches. That's a good old word, huh? Breeches. You shall make for them linen breeches to cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins even to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they enter the tent of meeting or when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they do not incur guilt and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. So when the altar, 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 I got it now, okay? Sometimes that R gets in the wrong place. Uh, only for a few of us, yeah. When steps were added, pants came in, okay? Pants came in. And, and here's another interesting thought, is the, is the requirement for pants carries over into the millennial worship. So if you... Um, I'm not going to have time to take you there, but write this down. Look it up on your own. Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel 43, verses 13 to 17, verse 17 in particular, and chapter 44 and verse 18, you will see that there is still pants among the priesthood in the millennium. What I would deduce from that is we will wear clothes in the coming kingdom, okay? So if that has been a question on your mind and you've wondered, when we get into the kingdom, are we going to be wearing clothes? Well, the priests will. And if the priests will, I think you will too. Okay? So nail that one down. All right. Now, fourth passage I want to look at with you quickly is Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. Verses 27 through 29. Still on the topic, what does the Bible teach about nakedness? Okay, what have we learned? Well, we've learned that God clothes us, and he clothes us for a purpose, right? The purpose is to, to remind us of our, of our guilty condition and to, and to give us that future hope of a, of, a, of a clothing in Christ. We also have learned that God was very serious in, in worship, that, that, that there was modesty, and that the opportunity for shameful or impure thoughts did not encroach into the worship of God's people. Here in 
Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 29 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole, your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, and so forth. So, what do we learn? We learn that Jesus locates the, the, the source of sexual sin in the heart, that it springs from the heart. But notice it is fed through the eyes. That's an important thing to note. It is fed through the eyes, right? You look upon a woman in this way. So the source is the wicked heart, but there it, is, it is fed through the eyes. And let me give you a classic example of this. The classic example of this is David, the king. David, the king. When David went out onto the roof of his palace on a warm evening, spring evening, he did not go out there with the intent to commit adultery. But the accidental view of Bathsheba set in progress, right, set in motion the path of, of wickedness that that brought all kinds of devastation upon the people of God. And it came through David's eyes. It came through David's eyes. He looked upon a woman as she bathed, and that set it all in motion. So the eyes are very, very important, gentlemen. The eyes are very, very important, right? That's why fifth passage, fifth passage, Job 31 and verse 31, Job understands these dangers, and therefore Job makes a covenant with his eyes, right? Not to look upon a virgin, he says. I made a covenant with my eyes. How could I gaze uh, at a virgin? Job 31, verse 1. Job understood, as a man, he understood that the eyes or, uh, represent a, a, a window into the soul, and it is through the eyes that, that great danger can enter into the human heart. So, men, guard your eyes. And ladies, please, please help your brother. Please help your brothers guard their eyes. Okay? All right. So that's nakedness before the fall, nakedness after the fall. In the few more minutes that we've got left, let's just talk about nakedness in the condition of marriage. All right? So nakedness remains shameful except for within the covenant walls of marriage between a man and a woman where it has been redeemed by God and provides a measure of intimacy and marital enjoyment, and this is an important point, for their eyes only. For their eyes only. Hebrews chapter 13 would be a classic text. Hebrews chapter 13. In verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God will judge. Or Paul's instructions to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he speaks there 
about within the context of marriage that a man does not have a right over his own body but his wife does and the wife does not have a right over her own body but her husband does and they are to provide the mutual enjoyment to one another within the confines of the marriage covenant. It is marital intimacy. That's the only place it belongs. We see the Old Testament reality of this in Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5 and the advice of a father to a son. Proverbs 5, verses 18 and 19. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? And he leads into it in verse 18. I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, okay? So rejoice in the wife of your youth. And then, of course, Song of Solomon, which is God's ode to marital love and the beauty of physical marital love. So within the confines, this is the only place, within the confines of the marriage covenant, the shame of nakedness is lifted, and only between a husband and a wife. And that's it, their eyes only. So, let me summarize, I know I've gone quick, but let me summarize for you and kind of boil it down to just a couple of points, okay? For the Christian, here they are, point number one. For the Christian, clothing serves a dual purpose. Number one, clothes are a perpetual sign of our sin and designed to cover our shame. Okay, just think with me on this. Clothes are a perpetual sign of our sin and designed to cover our shame. In commenting on that, uh, John Piper writes, and I, I like it and I quote it for you here, clothes are not meant to make people think about what is under them. Clothes are meant to direct attention to what is not under them, i.e. innocence. When we see one another clothed, what we are to think is sinner. Okay? Look around. Go ahead. Take a moment. Look around. No, take a good look. Anybody who thinks you're here that, you know, you're somehow different. Okay? You're not different. Clothing demonstrates our guilt. And that's its purpose. Furthermore, and I will say this, it represents something about our fallen, or reveals something about our fallenness in that that which was given to cover our shame becomes a source of our pride. We've become proud of the very thing that was given to us by God to cover up our shame, to remind us of our shame. That's how far the human heart is from God. That was number one. Number two, clothes are also a symbol of our hope. Clothes are also a symbol of our hope, right? They're a sign of our shame and a symbol of our hope in that we are no longer naked and guilty before God. That God has given us his own son who has fulfilled the law where we never could and has willingly surrendered himself to death in our behalf. He has broken the bonds of the grave. He has been raised from the dead with power. And all who will receive him by faith are clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Clothes should remind us of the gospel. It should remind us of our fallenness. It should remind us of our hope in Christ. Clothing is about the gospel. 
And maybe I can say one more thing here as I close. And that's a, a word to parents with young children. Because young children have an interesting way of wanting to parade in their birthday suits, right? We've all known that. And so as a parent, you first off, you're absolutely embarrassed for those that are sitting in your home and, and witness the event, but don't worry about it, okay, because everybody's kid does it. But in the process of teaching them, it's inappropriate. Make it a gospel teaching. Show them why it's inappropriate. I mean, obviously, at their age level. But they need to understand that nudity is wrong in the context because we are a fallen race. We are a fallen humanity. And we need desperately the gospel, and we need to be clothed in Christ. Use that teaching of modesty to teach them about the reality of the gospel. And as they move from what I might call the childhood innocence, where they are not yet fully understanding their guilt, and thus they feel no shame in parading around, let them come to understand that indeed there is great shame, and that the only hope they have is Jesus Christ, our Lord. May God bless this word. Let's pray. Father, we <clears throat> moved quickly here through these passages with a lot of information to process, and we just need your help. The gist of it is clear, though, that uh, we are a fallen race uh, without hope outside of Christ. And so, Father, may your spirit apply the truth here for us this morning for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.